You're listening to the Marcus Lush Nights podcast from Newstalk ZB. Good evening, Jim. It's Marcus. Welcome. I'd like to talk about dingoes. Oh, thank you. I spent uh, many years in the outback in Australia culling dingoes. Wow. Now, uh, a lot of the stuff you've had on there tonight just isn't correct. Right. So, so I'd like to tell you a bit about dingoes. Dingoes are different from dogs in that they howl but don't bark. And they communicate by high-pitched howling and grunts. And they're highly intelligent. They're so clever, they actually know what a doorknob is, and they can open a door by turning the doorknob. Now, they mate for life, and the problems they cause is that they kill over $100 million worth of livestock in Australia every year. And they do, they, they like killing. So a pair will run in the moonlight and they'll get a mob of sheep running. And they'll run them over a bridge into a gully and they'll stack up 20 feet deep. So the station owners, they hire people like me to kill them. And as well, the outback Shire counties in Australia, they've identified four animals that they pay a bounty on. The price is relatively the same from Shire to Shire. It's usually about $200 for a wild dog, 40 for a dingo, 17 for a fox, and 10 for a feral cat. Hello, are you there? Yes, certainly. Yep. Now, the dingo fence that people are talking about is 3,488 miles long. Now, a dingo can jump two meters from a standing uh, start, and they can also climb trees. Now, they originated in Asia, and they worked their way through the islands, up through Thursday Island into the north of Australia. And they are the most intelligent species of dog. They're far more intelligent than a coyote or a wolf. And if you're going to trap them, they are very, very prone to human scent. So you have to mask your scent. Cover your scent. Otherwise, uh, they're just too clever. And they've got a bad habit of carting babies off, particularly aborigine babies. They will actually cart them away from an Aborigine camp and eat them. There are quite a number of Aborigine people that keep them as pets. Whenabouts, Jim, were you working culling dingoes? All over the Northern Territory, the top of South Australia, Queensland, and the Northern Territory. And the stations up there that I was working on, are some of them are bigger than small countries in Europe. They're over over a thousand square miles. Now, if you take Anna Creek Station, that is the biggest cattle cattle station in the world, and they estimated that there were ten thousand breeding pairs on that station alone. And some of the other ones that I was working on in Arnhem Land, there were approximately eight eight hundred to a thousand square miles, and they would have somewhere between five and seven and a half thousand breeding pairs. Now, they, the uh, female breeding cycle runs from March to June of the year. 
And then that's when they breed and they mate for life. Are they go. Whenabouts, Jim, were you doing this? Whenabouts were you working in Australia? On, on all the big cattle stations in the top of Queensland, the Northern Territory, and the top of South Australia. And was this was this recent, or how long ago was this? Well, I started in 1963, and I still get called out, even though I'm very old now. I still get called out whenever there's a problem where a pair will maybe kill a thousand sheep in a night. And they still and the owners will bring me up to come over and see if I could get them. And you use you you don't trap. You use firearms. Is that right? No, I I, I did, but I I, I developed a. A system using high explosives, so I take out a big bomb at a time. So and is that is that like buried and there's a trigger and the, the, there's a there's a tripwire or there's a? Uh, no, we, uh, we we used to use a firing cable, but now we use a drone. And it works through a sat phone. And it's got a, got a it, it's got a night night vision set up, so we see them at night. And you've got to be very careful because of any other animals. But what we do is we'll use a dead horse or a cattle beast or whatever is handy, and then we'll wait till about 15 or 20 wild dogs or dingoes or whatever we're after is feeding, and then we can we can detonate it from a drone. Wow! So we've moved up with the technology. Have you done any work on wallabies in New Zealand, Jim? No, well, one thing I did, uh, I was one of the first to farm possums in New Zealand. In 1977, I lobbied the New Zealand government, and I was given a permit uh, supervised by the New Zealand Forest Service to farm possums, in particular the New Zealand rock possum, which you possibly haven't heard of. It's a subspecies that produces a particularly colored pelt, and we were producing them for the international market uh, in two, two-thirds like women's coats. But it never it never took off because of uh, a lot of problems with government departments and 1080 and all that kind of stuff. Have they not requested you to help out with the wallabies? No, well, they... Uh, the, you've got a real, what, in 1987, the New Zealand Forest Service ceased to exist and was taken over by the Conservation Department. And, uh, they, they run, run everything quite different, uh, to wildlife departments around the world that I've worked for or people like that. They like to keep everything in the house. And, uh, their idea, I think, is, the impression I get from, from uh, dealing with them is they don't really want anybody on Crown land here. They want to keep it all in-house and, and uh, run it that way. So uh, they, they don't really uh, welcome outsiders, I don't think. Are the rock possums you talk about, Jim, are they a regional variant? Where are they? Yes, they're up the East Coast is, is an area. They're very dark brown almost black on the back and they've got a creamy light yellow underbelly so when you skin them you've got a, a, a strip of creamy fur either side of the pelt and yes. they make absolutely beautiful coats the prototype coat that I had made in 1970 or 71 sold in California for the same money as a three bedroom Beasley home cheapest 
but we 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 just couldn't get any any cooperation or anything, and, and uh, so eventually, uh, with with uh, downturns in the fur market and all the trouble with people like that beauty without cruelty outfit and some of the other nutters that came on the scene, it just just uh, wasn't worth the hassle in the finish. What got you started with dingoes, Jim? Well, I, I, I'm actually a prospector, and uh, you know I was into uh, 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 prospecting up. I lived up in PNG for quite a while, and then I shifted down to Queensland, and I ran into a very famous New Zealander in, in, uh, in the in the pub in Cooktown. He he had a had a bald-headed wife with short hair, and he had very long hair at the time. Could you tell me who you think he was? Barry Crump? Yep, Barry Crump. And Barry and I became very good friends, and that's how why I came to New Zealand was to see Barry. And, and of course, Barry was one of the world's characters. Put a, line and, under, uh, put a line under that. So you're an Aussie originally, Jim? Yeah, I come and go all the time, yeah. And how did you get going into... Into wallet and into dingo extermination. Did you just uh, see an opportunity there? No, I grew up in the far north of Canada, and I went to, went to work for the Hudson Bay Company with a dog team in the winter and a freight canoe in the summer. And they trained me as a fur miner and buyer and, and grader. And then I uh, I worked in the mining industry and. and uh, the New Zealand government brought me over here to uh, do the explosives of the Manapuri Power Project. And then I went back to Canada, and I was working in Alaska, and I got headhunted head by a, an ex-All Black, whose family were the first uh, developers of the Pointus Radiata Forestry in New Zealand. They are overrun with possums, and he asked me if would I come over here and sort it out for him. So I did. And that's how I, I, I sort of... Uh, you know, met Australians, and I went over to some of the cattle stations and that over there, and uh, it's just a natural progression, really. I spent my whole life doing it. Have you written a book? No, I've, I've been asked to several times, but people aren't interested in adventure now. They're, they're interested in drones and dragons and Harry Potter stuff. <laughs> I reckon people would be interested in your book, Jim. No, I, 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 I do a few articles that I occasionally put on the internet in the States. They seem to like it over there. But oh, yeah. I, you know, I, I don't think that uh, people here would be that very, you know, it's more of a of a, an urban population now. And I, I don't think they're into adventure much, really. No, I think, well. I wanted a life of adventure. And what do you spend you know, your I days? I a lot of time, you know, chasing the gemstones and uh, platinum nodules, and I had a high beggar for gold and, and, uh, and that kind of thing. So I was interested in that. What do you spend your days doing now, Jim? Well, I, <laughs> I, uh, I've been a beekeeper all my life, and I designed and built bee gear. Oh, okay. Wow. And I, I developed a commercial process for uh, getting bees to produce propolis in, in commercial quantities. Yes. And then I, I found out that it was it was useless trying to patent it because 
uh, my daughter, who is a lawyer, said, well, you're just wasting your time because the Chinese will buy one and they'll flood the market with it. So, it you know, it's, it'll cost you more than it's worth doing. It's, uh, I, I didn't bother, really. Oh, I think you should write your story down, Jim. I can imagine there'd be all sorts of people who want to hear your story. Well, it, it doesn't really... Well, one of the problems is with these modern people, they don't believe you. <laughs> they simply they don't believe that people would have a life like that now because they, they, most people have a fairly boring existence from, from what I can see. Well, you sound like a, you sound fairly convincing. Well, I, I, I did it all. I, you know, I spent my whole life doing it. The only comment I would make is I've never met anybody that had a better life than I've had. If I walk out the door and get hit by a bus, I still think I've got the best out of it that I could have. It's a pretty so good way to look. It's, it's a pretty yeah, good way to look. Yeah, well, it's extraordinary, Jim. Look, thank you so very much for coming through with that. Wow, what a call. Jeepers. For more from Marcus Lush Nights, listen live to News Talk ZB from 8 p.m. weekdays or follow the podcast on iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will love our New Zealand Herald podcast, The Little Things, hosted by me, Francesca Rudkin, and my good friend, Louise Airy. We focus on all the little things that you can do to make a positive impact on your life and to cut through the confusion from the health and wellness industry. Join us every Saturday to hear from the experts for all the tips and advice you need. Just search The Little Things on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts.